Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. It's a joy for me to be today with Dr. George Greer. Uh, I like him very much, so I'm letting you in on the secret. Uh, this is personal and not personal. So, here with George Greer, MD. He's the president and co-founder of the Hefter Institute. Dr. Greer conducted over 100 therapeutic sessions with MDMA for 80 individuals from 1980 to 1985 with his psychiatric nurse wife, Riqua Talbert. He is a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and past president of the Psychiatric Medical Association of New Mexico. He was also the clinical director of mental health services for the New Mexico Corrections Department during the 1990s. He was the medical director of the Hefter Research Institute from 1998 to 2018 when he became president. Welcome, George. Thank you. And uh, I'm going to ask you right off the bat, you are a very serious researcher of one could say, psychedelic medicines. Well, how do you conduct this life of being a doctor and a psychiatrist and being a researcher and an explorer of the good that can come from plants and chemicals um, that are in our culture and our not yet accepted legally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I'm actually mainly a clinical psychiatrist, and the work I did with MDMA was more clinical work, you know, giving it to people in a therapeutic-type setting, therapeutic-type interactions, and, and just taking notes and questionnaires before and after. So I'm not, I'm not a formally trained researcher, uh, but I'm a consumer of research, and as president of Hefter, Hefter Research Institute uh, both reviews and vets and funds psychedelic research in medical schools, so the real hardcore scientific research. So, so I supervise that, I help fund it, I help get it reviewed, and as a consumer, I, I feel like it helps me you know, be an advocate for good quality research and research that's relevant to, to human problems and, and psychiatric problems. So I'm basically, I'm clinically based in, in therapy and helping people. And the, and the main reason I got into research to writing it down was because 
these kinds of medicines are not sanctioned in this society and in this culture. And I was fortunate with MDMA at the time in 1980, it was not illegal uh, through the DEA. It was just just a molecule that was out there. And I, I did some legal research, actually. And my only really main discovery is discovering that as a doctor, I could manufacture, synthesize this drug, and I could give it to my own patients. I couldn't sell it to other doctors or sell it to anybody. I could only use it in my practice. And that was a legal thing in California because doctors, you know, I I can scrape the bark off the tree and give it to my patients. That's legal. The FDA has no, no say about that. So that was a very fortunate sort of Camelot type of situation. And then I became involved in all the bureaucracy, the science and all that as a result of that being controlled and not being able to do that clinically. And I got involved in this whole administrative thing and, and running Hefter, et cetera. But my heart is still in the, in the treatment and helping the patients who are suffering, the people who are suffering. And now, uh, this past year, I'm fortunate to be asked to do the MDMA treatment again or, or the, the sessions again with therapists, learning how to do that therapy and that's going to be starting, uh, you know, in the next few months. So that's very exciting after 34 years to be able to do that direct clinical work with people in that state, that open state, uh, which is the most most exciting to me. I mean, the science is really interesting, and I've, oh my gosh, I've met amazingly brilliant researchers and people and wonderful people in this field, and that's really one of the most I'd say the most attractive things about being involved in this world is the people I've met are just very unique, amazing, loving, friendly, intelligent, brilliant people, strong head, strong heart. And that's just, uh, I'm just really excited and grateful to be, have, been, have been part of that. But my core is the, really the direct experience work. So... What is it, do you think, that attracts people whose desire to be loving is more open than others to this work, like, like it probably has a psychologist and, or certain psychologists and psychiatrists? Um, what is the trajectory of the heart and MDMA or the feelings that we attribute coming from the heart. So from MDMA, specifically, MDMA is very unique, as as a lot of people know. It it doesn't really alter one's ability to think and speak. Um, uh, Cognition is pretty intact. But uh, the way I described it then, uh, that Rick and I described it was, it uh, reduces the experiences it reduces the experience of a perceived threat uh, to the person. People just don't feel threatened emotionally in this in the MDMA state. And they've since done research that shows the amygdala is is the sort of the fear center is is pretty shut down with MDMA. So there's this reduction in fear. It's just it's just difficult to be afraid in the MDMA state uh, on a biological way. <clears throat> the other thing it does. It's somewhat stimulating and euphoric. So there's energy and there's a positive mood. And um, so with the, de- with the decrease in fear, uh, 
I mean, my belief is that really, you know, love and fear, people can say are opposites, that love is just sort of, it's just sort of a given. It's just sort of present. It's just this openness. And there's a feeling of love. I mean, love has lots of meanings. There's a feeling of this positive mood and connection and romantic love and erotic love and compassionate love, etc. But it's just, a, I see it as an openness. And without fear, it's just, it's just always there. And the fear is a distraction from it. That's how I see it. And then the, the, the positive uh, stimulus and, and stimulant and euphoria of MDMA gives it just more energy to be in that positive state. So people, defenses are lowered. And, and one of the things that Rico and I learned the first time we had it was we could talk about, th- and we were very new in our relationship then, we could talk about things that normally would make us nervous or we would feel a little defensive or sort of beat around the bush or just sort of try to be polite and not really, maybe not be aware of things we felt that were not polite or happy. Uh, but in the MDMA state, we could just say that, and it wasn't a threat. We weren't afraid, and we could we could hear it. And it was it was like, oh, well, this is okay to say. And, uh, you know, defense is down, but cognition intact, and our, our cells were intact. And then when we gave it to people, back then it was people who were generally, uh, you know, the worried well. Uh, I mean, people like us who didn't have any serious problems uh, maybe some little personality problems, but they also, when couples did it, they also found that they could communicate in a more direct way uh, without uh, talking around the topic. And then they they learned that they could continue this way of communication even after the session. And the questionnaires we did afterwards, the longest was two years. They said, "Yeah, we can. We can. We're still speaking more directly from ourselves, from our heart." what we really think, positive and negative, you know, because sometimes people are afraid to say things that are too loving. They want to, don't want to be too schmaltzy or too obvious or, or be too vulnerable. They're not afraid of being vulnerable. And they're not afraid of saying things that are giving negative feedback either. So these couples were able to do that long after. So, I, you know, I think this is just a natural way to talk. And you certainly don't need MDMA to learn how to communicate that way. But it really seemed to to help people be more direct and therefore more directly connected and less in their neurotic patterns, neurotic communication patterns and defenses. And, oh, if I say this, he'll think this and I'll think that and then they'll think that. All that busy mind stuff that just is distracting from the true um, speaking and connection. So I think that's why people who like to feel connected in a loving way are attracted to MDMA because it really accentuates that. You reminded me of a phrase of uh, Stephen Levine, who used to say, you want to have your heart so open that it takes a long way to close. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I like that. Yeah, 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 we we had some contact with Stephen a long time ago around our work with MDMA, and he was very supportive of it. He was a sweet time. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, at this time, it seems to me like in the in 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 the outside noise, in the noise that surrounds us, the 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 quantumness of fear is increasing and increasing. It seems to be a a, a political weapon that's been used more and more. 
So it's quite extraordinary that at this moment there are those of you who are working to make available medicines that reduce fear. So does that include psilocybin and other other medicines? And how do you feel about that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think in today's, our, our nation and the world, politics, obviously more division, more fear and hate, which kind of go together, and more separation and projection and mistrust in, in these sort of, you know, conservative and liberal groups, the pro-Trump, the anti-Trump, etc. Um, but interestingly, um, with the MDMA, a, a huge uh, uh, Trump supporter uh, has given a million dollars for MDMA research uh, because it helps veterans with PTSD, Rebecca, Rebecca Mercer, who's a mm-hmm. big right-wing, uh, uh, you know, conservative uh, funder, uh, because she and I think you know who can argue that that soldiers with PTSD should be denied something that helps them. I mean, nobody can argue with that. Nobody does argue with that. You know, I mean, the government hasn't funded it or incorporated it into their programs yet, but MDMA hasn't been approved by FDA yet. Uh, but that's going to be big. But psilocybin, I think, works in a different way to reduce fear. It doesn't have that sort of direct fear reduction in the amygdala like MDMA does. But what psilocybin does, it really uh, pretty much shuts down the the structure of the ego, the structure of the personality, at least at the high doses, 25, 30 milligrams, which is like five or six grams of dried mushrooms. And people, when they're prepared and they have a connection with a therapist and the therapist know what they're doing. Uh, most of them have this mystical type experience it's called where they're just their ego boundaries are fluid or non-existent. They're out of space and time. They're really not a, not a, a normal structured self in the way we think of it in the day-to-day world. They're just this consciousness and it's usually blissful, uh, though sometimes it can be there can be very difficult existentially fearful times during the process, but most of them open up to this mystical state of non-ego, big self, and in that state uh, there's not fear because there's not an other, you know, it's just all is one. There's not a separation. Um, there's just oneness, and so that by a different, very different way, they get to this expanded state of beingness. And I would say an expanded identity, I would say parallel to the uh, Atman, Brahman concept in, in Hinduism, you know, the, the individual self and the sort of non-individual cosmic self. And when people uh, experience that, uh, being that, uh, for, you know, even a couple of hours or so with psilocybin, uh, they remember that. And uh, they don't. They go back into their everyday personality again, but they they remember that it happened. It's something you can't forget. And so uh, a lot of them have a different uh, idea about themselves and their role in the world, and, and what's the meaning of life, what's important in life. And um, you know, on the on the one hand, there was a woman I interviewed who'd had psilocybin for alcoholism here in New, in New Mexico. And uh, her first session was very difficult. She couldn't see her children. She just cried the whole time and just mourned over how much she had messed up her life through drinking alcohol, been very insidious and just detached, unconnected from people. 
But her second session was beautiful. She saw colors. She saw her children. She connected with her children. She wanted to like be with her children with God. And uh, she felt that this is what she called the one true God that's common with all religions and all views. And she had been raised in a very rigid Christian cult where her mother sewed her own dresses and lots of rules and, and she got out of that and explored other things. But after after this session, this was 14 months later, she had not drunk any alcohol. She became more involved with her Christian evangelical church in Albuquerque. So in a way, she was more classically American apple pie person than she was before psilocybin. So that's one story. There's another story where a, a young man, he'd been raised in the South and with a racist, bigoted father, and uh, that's the way he grew up. That's what he learned. And he said in about three hours of psilocybin mushrooms, he's just his whole ideology completely changed. Not racist. You know, all people are equal and connected and just saw through all that and totally changed his uh, philosophical and p- political ideology from where he'd been. So in a way, the opposite of, of the other woman. But I think his... From what he described, his his upbringing was abusive and negative and, and hostile, and he just got beyond that into more of a feeling a loving connection with with humanity uh, in general. Uh, so they work in different ways, but often I think it, they lead to similar places in getting beyond what I would call the socialized self, the uh, you know the socialized personality. You know, we're all subject to socialization, and uh, my wife had this phrase. Uh, the genetic George, like on MDMA, would see me or each other without, with less of the socialized programming uh, that had gotten into our personalities through growing up in culture. Well, um, 36 years ago, um, I was given MDMA and I was a... Uh, a real alcoholic. I, I drank two bottles of hard liquor a day, and I weighed 87 pounds. And I was given MDMA, and I never drank again, and it's been 36 years. And what happened was it showed me in nine hours, eight hours, it it showed me where I loved myself. Uh, I thought I was a complete uh, ball of hatred, self-hatred, but it showed me that I loved myself and I wanted to cultivate that. So um, I'm a true believer. I mean, alcohol was not good for me. So I want to ask you... In the 50s, people like uh, Timothy Leary and a mentor of yours, Leo Zeef, uh, emerged in, um, in universities and, um, and several of these people, these men, changed the course of history, I think, in in many ways. Um, 
the example that I often use is about, and it's strange, about uh, psychedelic research and psychedelic use is uh, people don't automatically go into the army anymore. It seems to me that there is a very, I mean, the greatest, the greatest honor for people was to be cannon fodder. And that mentality has changed uh, fundamentally. Uh, I mean, to go into the military is a profession. And that's very different from the last 20 centuries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a lot of examples like that, but I want to... uh, you to comment on what you think it is that these these people and our generation came along and a lot of the uh, the way of thinking and what we took naturally uh, has changed. As Michael Pollan said, change your mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So I was, uh, I was born in 1950 and uh, my father was at the end of World War II and... Uh, other than other than the Civil War, I think all the wars the United States fought, every everyone in the country was mostly behind them. You know, World War One, World War Two. I mean, there was a lot of resistance, and especially World War One, to getting into it in the first place, even World War Two. But the country was essentially, you know, World War Two. We were we saved the world, you know, and, and not that we saved it in a happy way. Sure, the atomic bomb was not a happy thing, but we united. But then the Vietnam War came. Even the Korean War, we were on the same page. The Vietnam War came, uh, you know, soon after LSD came, or ra- right around the same time, really, in the early 60s. And so, you know, I was in college then, in, in my in my early 20s, and I don't think I could separate the effects of the Vietnam War and the protests with that and how those affected me. Because in college, you know, my friends and I were having psychedelic experiences at the same time in that cultural context. And I don't, I don't think it's possible to say, well, what if LSD had come out into the public without the Vietnam War? It's like, well, that is, that's so hypothetical, you can't even think about it. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. So, so I remember 1968, I finished high school, and I wanted to be a chemist, maybe a doctor, and uh, and that summer was the Chicago convention where the police were beating up the students. And I was watching with my friends, and we were just stunned. And that was a life-changing event for all of us, 1968, I think, for all of us. Like, oh, our country is just not all good and apple pie. And I'm shocked. And, the, and actually, there are human problems other than just chemistry problems in life to address. And I changed my whole orientation from science toward humanities into psychology, eventually into psychology. And uh, and I started out going to Rice University, which is my father went there in Texas, a great science school. I was going to study chemistry. But I got there. It's like I was tired of being in Texas. I didn't want to do science. I wanted to do psychology. And because uh, my whole my whole attitude had shifted over that summer of '68, and then I went to Vassar College. It was the East Coast. It was New York. People there had been to Woodstock the summer before. It was like, you know, going from night to day. And I realized I realized what a strange place Texas was, because I didn't know anybody 
who knew anybody who hadn't grown up in Texas. Uh, that was that was the whole universe to me and my friends. And New York, it's uh, it's different over there. And uh, I got a perspective and a lot of great things about Texas. People are friendly, etc. More in a way is more open, but also open to just more like Texans, you know, uh, people who share the views because we all thought the same there in Texas. Um, so that was that was a big transformation, and and then the psychedelics in college, and then the Vietnam War in college, and all this other attitudes and learning about you know Vietnamese. Actually, they're they are just humans like we are. I remember, like in uh, early in high school, junior high, I thought, well, those are inferior people. They're they're like cat and fodder. They they let themselves be killed in wars, and they and they're just they're not really people like us. You know, that's how I thought in junior high in Texas. And I got to the east, and it's like, no, these are these people like us, and I really got it. And then women, you know, Vassar College, it was mostly women. Then like women. Women are like people like us guys, too. Like, they're not just people to date or try to have sex with. They're like people and really developed into, like, understanding more the equality of people and men and women and and racial and cultural. So I think it's a better way to look at things. And the psychedelics certainly, I think, sped that up because uh, I was able to consider concepts I never would have considered before. And my friends and I, we would have these experiences and we would talk about philosophy and psychology and the ego and spirituality. And I was fortunate, I had these discoveries and these you know spiritual openings and I didn't know what to do with them, but I was fortunate enough to uh, be in a class of Eastern religions for a year with a teacher who really lived that and who understood psychedelics and the whole youth interested in spirituality and mind expansion and then meditation. And so that gave me a framework to put these experiences in. I was very fortunate to have that. And I appreciate that, that like Tim Leary, when he had his first experiences, he had no model. He had no place to put it in, no way to think about it. He was just grabbing at straws. And he, and he twin, you know, ended up studying Hinduism, which gave him a model. So I was very fortunate to have that. And uh, so that, that just really helped me... Uh, expand my mind. And, and it reminds me of Sasha Shulgin, who was the chemist I made MDMA with. Uh, someone asked him in a, some conference, do psychedelics have any permanent effects? He said, absolutely, just like a higher education. And I think that's true. You know, they do. They Once you learn something, you can't unlearn it. You know, I can't go back to the person I was in high school. It's just not possible. I remember it. But that's not real anymore. I can't. I can't get immersed in that anymore. It's not possible, and that's great. So that's why I would call it an expansion rather than a contraction. It's not just moving from A to B to C. It's moving to something that encompasses A, B, and C, where you can, you know, step back and get a perspective, stand back and get a mindful perspective of the phenomena. Because I don't really think, because we're not the phenomena. You know, we are the perceivers of the phenomena. At least that's how I think. And and that um, and that we're not individuals. And my my religion teacher Bid Vassar, I remember the last day I saw him. He said, "Well, uh, the problem is, you know, that that we don't really exist as individuals. You know, that's like the the Buddhist thing. You know, we are we do not exist as individuals. But there's all these people who don't know that." 
And that's just one of these great paradoxes that really sticks with me. And that's, you know, we live in paradox because mm-hmm. once you start thinking in words, you're limiting things, it's confined, and it's not real. But words are all we have. So we have to, we have to point to it with words. And it, it reminds me of uh, Jim Fadiman had this phrase, you know, some people mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon. And then some people suck on the finger. <laughs> I never heard the third part. That's great. Yeah. So, so, so I think I think absolutely meditation definitely because I got very involved in meditation after my early psychedelic experiences because that can help bring it into everyday life, you know, which is really important and, and critical. And to me, my meditation experience is more profound and more. I would say important ontologically, consciousness, philosophically, because they were just quiet and open and empty, and the psychedelics are noisy. You know, you're out there, but they're they're in your face. Yeah, yeah you know, they're in your face. And MDMA, not so much. But meditation is critical, and I think it's really good, especially people involved in psychedelic work or research have some sort of spiritual practice, meditation, uh that's not dependent on drugs or altered states or anything, just for a personal grounding, because we have to live and function in the world. We have to be with people, and, and uh, the psychedelics are good for being inside and getting in touch with that spiritual aspect, but you can't you can't go to the grocery store and do your work and, and hold a job, you know, if you're tripping all the time. So so I think the meditation's uh, helpful, and, and the sucking in the finger, you know, people get attached to spiritual concepts not spiritual the concepts and they get addicted you know cults and and ideas and ideologies and then they're just then it's like us versus them again and that's not helpful we need you need to be able to love your enemy and um you know be compassionate and listen to people and uh and, and so psychedelics can be tools but obviously they're just molecules you know they don't have an ideology which is beautiful about them but People can do evil, you know, Charles Manson, you know, they can be taken anywhere. And Hitler, Hitler and them were into mescaline, I understand, you know, and they got into Tibetan Buddhist stuff, you know, and they abused it. And so any ideology can be abused and any drug can be abused. And uh, this is sort of a side, but uh, someone asked Sasha, you know, what's what's drug abuse? So he got a pill and he took a hammer and he crushed the pill with a hammer. And he said, that's drug abuse. <laughs> <laughs> So that's sort of off topic, but it just it just popped in my head. I had to say it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, drugs can be a tool like anything else to abuse yourself. That's right. I yeah. mean, I, I I know that one you very that. very well. Yes, you do yeah. know that. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, um, would you like to talk to us? Uh, um, I understand that uh, last year you retired from being a um, from a doctor, from being a psychiatrist, not retired. Being a psychiatrist, I was going to say that, but I was going to say from being a daily working psychiatrist. Um, And so now you do what you. What you really believe in? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so yeah. So last summer, I my, uh, I mean, I was a psychiatrist for forty years, seeing patients, and uh, you know, for five years, I got to use MDMA as part of that. It didn't earn really many money, 
But that's where I really, I mean, you give people MDMA and they think you're great and they love you and they get well by themselves and they have these great insights and you're just there in their presence while they're doing it. It's just fabulous, <laughs> you know, but regular psychiatry and therapy is not like that. And, uh, and as a psychiatrist, I do feel I had different careers in private practice and the prison system, which is really interesting. And, uh, been in a treatment center for people with mostly sexual trauma, PTSD, um, and then the state mental hospital of the most seriously ill people in New Mexico. And, you know, I use standard psychiatric medicines. And, you know, for the really mentally ill people, you know, those medicines are lifesavers. I mean... Let me just ask you a question I always have, which is, what what is a truly med- mentally ill person? So I would say, so yeah. let's talk about that. So yeah. in, in psychiatry, people complain about diagnoses, etc. So virtually all the psychiatric diagnoses require that the person have difficulties in functioning in their personal life, their hygiene, or their social life, their relationships, or their vocation, their jobs, you know. So people can think all sorts of things and be hallucinating or be delirious or paranoid or whatever, but if they're functioning in life, they are not mentally ill by definition, you know. The people who end up in the state hospital, for the most part, uh, and that they're committed against their will because they they were either a danger to themselves, like suicidal, or they assaulted other people, danger to self or others, or they were caught gravely disabled. They couldn't take care of themselves. Like they're on the street, they were out in the cold, you know, without enough clothing. So their life is in danger. So people, at least everywhere I know, don't don't get put in a hospital against their will unless they're in danger of harming themselves or others. So these because of a, because of a mental illness. If they don't have mentally ill, they don't go there. They have to have symptoms of mental illness like uh, hallucinations, delusions, depression, mania, etc., and not be able to function and take care of themselves. So those people, to survive in the world, needed the medications to get their brains so they could function and physically survive. And so I'm, you know, I, f- I feel good about that. Though it's it's sort of the the bottom end of mental health. Another career I had was. Over 25 years, I consulted with uh, residential homes for mentally retarded adults. And these people, uh, you know, they would, uh, a lot of their psychiatric medicines were because they would either physically assault themselves or other people. And so, uh, in aggression, uh, a lot of the staff there would be physically injured seriously by the mentally retarded patients. And they used to be in these, you know, institutions and were neglected, and they, and then they, uh, the courts, you know, let them out into more home settings, which was much better. But still, they, you know, they couldn't survive without the medications to reduce their anger, their impulsiveness, et cetera, and help them get along and not hurt themselves or their people. So this is very, you know, when I got out of uh, medical school residency, I'm going to be helping the, you know, the people who just need a little push to get into enlightenment, you know, the best and the brightest. Yeah. But instead, I did the worst in prison and the, and the dullest in the mentally retarded. So it was the opposite of what I imagined. But I still saw it as a really, as a good service just to be, it's like being a family doctor for these people. You know, these are, this is the level they needed help with. And it was very concrete. It was not, well, it was spiritual in a way that you're spiritual with everybody. But it was not psychedelic at all. It was just very mainstream psychiatry. And uh, and I felt good about it. It was a service, but it wasn't my core inner passion, you know, to do. So I gradually, 
I was always able to work part-time and earn enough money and do, do the psychedelic stuff on the side, so I was fortunate in that. And that's when I was asked to be medical director of Hefter because everybody else in Hefter were full-time scientists. No one had time, but I, as a private practitioner, I had time to spend toward it as a volunteer. And so now, in the past year, I, I, I believe I have enough money to to function the rest of my life. And I still work for Hefter. I get paid by Hefter some, uh, a few hours a week. But I'm able to pursue things in my own interest. And so one of the things, three weeks after I, quote, retired, uh, the MAPS people called me and said, would you administer MDMA to people in therapy training, you know, who are going to be treating people with PTSD? And I said, yes. I said, but, I, but I, 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 you can't pay me for it. What's MAPS? MAPS, say yeah, so MAP, MAPS is the Multiple, Multiple Disciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And uh, in the 1980s at Esalen, they hosted meetings about MDMA and psychedelics. And that's where I met uh, Dave Nichols, who had founded Hefter, and Rick, Rick Doblin, who founded MAPS, and then Terrence and Dennis McKenna, who had their own thing. And so we all... Maps and Hefter came out of those meetings at Esalen in the 80s that were, were, were sponsored by Esalen. So we have a great debt to them. Uh, so now I'm able to pursue that. And then Maps asked me to do this this work, which is just like the MDMA work I did before, giving MDMA now to therapists in training who were fun- obviously functional people. And to me, it's just fabulous to pass on sort of the lineage of the, my teachers who were Stan Groff and Leo Zeff and Ralph Metzger and uh, to pass it on to people to carry it forward in the next generation I feel this in, I'm 69 years old I feel this instinctual drive to to pass on to the younger people the next generation it's just uh, it just feels like an instinct coming sort of a critical period it's coming forth now in this stage of life and able to do that and and not have to charge money and I think that really comes from my daughter actually who when she first earned money in college, she gave us her first $200 to go out to dinner, like incredibly generous, more generous than we ever were. And then at Burning Man, you know, been there 10 times. And uh, generosity is is a core value of Burning Man. You know, this is a gift economy. You're not allowed to buy or sell anything there, except you can buy ice or coffee from Burning Man. Uh, it's all gift. And uh, Dale Pendle, who was a poet who wrote about psychedelics, you know, he did give this lecture and he said, generosity is our core nature. And it really was important to me. It's like, yeah, because, you know, when I started in private practice, I would every week, like, how much money did I earn? And I earned enough. And, oh, it's not enough. And I just, you know, worried, worried, worried. And after a while, I got, I had the insight, oh, this is brilliant. The universe, the purpose of the universe isn't to starve me to death. What an insight. And I went like, <laughs> <laughs> and another insight was, oh, it's okay if my patients get well and it's not because of me. You know, like I didn't heal them. That's generous. Yeah. So these were like kind of duh insights, but that's where I was. And, you know, the whole world is so focused on money and survival. You know, it's the first chakra. But at Burning Man, it's like in my daughter, it's like, oh, you know, giving is good. And so now I'm able to bring that gift economy ethic into my life because it's much more pleasant to just do things and not ask people for money for it. You know, it's just so much easier because uh, because I want to do it. And, and believe me, it has been work 
this MDMA thing, I thought it was going to be easy, but we had to find a place which took months and cost a lot of money. And I did not sign up for that. It was work, but I wanted to do it. I wanted to get it done. I want to see it done, you know, and um, uh, maybe some of your listeners saw the last uh, of the Game of Thrones where there's this discussion. uh, Duty is the death of love. And I thought about that. It's like, wow, that's so true because when I was in college, one of my existential crises was, well, I can study hard and save the world or I can try to find a girlfriend, but I can't do them at the same time. <laughs> that led to a whole existential crisis, which, yeah, which yeah. some resolution. But, uh, but doing the MDMA work, the psychedelic work, is both love and duty, as is caring for my new granddaughter because it's a duty to take care of her because she cannot take care of herself at five months old. So it's work, but I love her. So it's love and duty combined. And it's, I think it's rare. So love is not, death is not, duty is not always the death of love or vice versa. Uh, so it's very fortunate to have those moments where love and duty are, are, are the same activity. So that's that's what very I'm focused fortunate. on after, after working for a paycheck. <laughs> very, very fortunate. Yeah. I mean, we should stop soon, but I, I'm very curious about asking you what's the process that you, um, that you develop with the therapists? How, how does a session go and what are you hearing from the, uh, the people, the therapists that you're working yeah. with? So, so we haven't started the work with a therapist yet, but I've done that before. So I can tell you that first, there's, there's three stages, preparation, session, and integration. So preparation involves uh, getting to know the person, they getting to know you, and establishing what we call a therapeutic alliance where there's trust. And with the MDMA, if they didn't trust to turn their ego control over to us, then we didn't do the session. You know, If you can't trust us, you shouldn't do it. We don't want to do it. In fact, if we have a gut feeling that it's not right, even though it looks right, we wouldn't do it. So first there's the trust, the preparation, they're informed of all our risks, etc. And so they can they can trust and let go of their ego control. And during the session, they just say whatever they say. And the integration then is is getting back into the session the next day, talking about their everyday life and how to incorporate their insights, their learnings into their daily life and relationships and habits to bring it into life. So that's that's the general arc of, of that. It's all psychedelic therapy, really. I, I, I was thinking about what you were saying about love and duty. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I was just uh, thinking that... that uh, True love is is the transformation of duty. I mean, deep love. Deep, deep love. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, in 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 the in the Game of Thrones, what it ends up is you know the the hero kills his his lover because she broke bad. You know, she was bad. She just enraged. She murdered all these people with her dragon, and so uh, so his duty to the people. He had to give up love, you know, by killing this woman who'd become a monster. And so for him, it was a choice. And so that was an example of when they're separate. But the deeper love was his love of the people. 
and and the and the, in the end, you know, the love of the people really. The final king, he loves the people, and he has a duty, and he is the king. And so it is, it is joined as one again, because it's a much deeper love than personality or individual. You know, it's beyond the ego, beyond the individual. It's a love that's just, yeah, it's transpersonal. It's, it's, it's beyond individuality. And that's the love that's, that I think psychedelics help people get in touch with, and, that, and is healing for them, and then healing of the people they come in contact with. Yeah, I never expected to experience the kind of love that I have come to experience after uh, 50 years of experience, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. suffering, (laughs) and psychedelics. Uh So, did you? Well, I started my first experiences, I was 19, so... uh, (laughs) There you go. That and I and I I've read your book and uh, and I had a very different experience in early life than of you did. Of course. So I was I was very I was it was an easier time than you had. <laughs> George, uh, I'm I'm going to ask you uh, something strange in closing, but it seems to me uh, I've heard from some friends and so on that there's there's a gold rush going on at the moment. People are sort of knocking down doors, people who might might be, so to speak, uh, psychedelic therapists, people saying, give me what Michael Pollan has. And uh, so in a sense, I want to ask you in closing to... um, Give some, give some uh, sapience, some sagesse, some, some, some good advice to people who are looking to alter their experience. I see. So people who are looking for, and now have to be underground sessions, illegal sessions with psychedelics. Um, well, I mean, I mean, as president of Hefter, we send out emails, people asking, where can I get psychedelics to have this experience? And we always say medic- the medically responsible thing, you know, don't do this at home. You know, don't do this without a, a trained person who knows what they're doing without a pure drug and a dose. And uh, the only way to be sure that's available is to be sure of, of what you're putting in your mouth. And uh, in underground legal market, that's difficult to come by. So it's an ethical, medical, responsible thing to say, don't do it unless you have the, that situation. And of course, many people have these experiences underground and get great benefit from them, you know, uh, probably the majority of people, because a lot of people do it. I mean, if, if it didn't work, people wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I can't say it doesn't help you because it does. But in my role as a doctor and as president of Hefter, I have to say, you know, as advising the public at large, you know, there's some people, people with history of psychosis in their family or themselves or manic episodes can be harmed or traumatized by a psychedelic experience, especially without prepared person around them. And just biologically, they can, they can have a relapse of their, of their psychosis or their mania. And that can be harmful and traumatic and they can be worse off afterwards. That's a very small you know, two or three percent of the population, but those people are at risk. You know, in this situation, or if, or if someone recovers a memory of some childhood trauma, and there's no one there to help them work through it, that can be a source of trauma in itself. 
So these are risks. And it's my job as doctor, you know, we're taught to think of the worst possible scenario and be ready to handle that. Because as a doctor, it is ultimately life and death. You have to be able to prepare to deal with the worst possible uh, scenario, including a, a suicide attempt. So people have to be very careful. And uh, it's it's buyer beware out there, you know. Um, I guess that's that's the main thing I have to say. Thank you so much, George. Yes, thank you, Joanna. This is great. Good. Thanks for this opportunity. It was a a joy to be with you. Thank you.